Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your faithfulness. Thank You that we can um, gather together as Your people to sing Your praises, to recount uh, the wonder of grace and all Your tender mercies toward us, Father. We, we thank You for that. And we, we ask that uh, You would continue to guide our hearts and minds as we open up the Scriptures in a very powerful passage and so much to consider, but we trust that You will you will help us, give us understanding, help us to see the things that you would have us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Daniel. I'm sure most of you in here have heard several sermons on this passage. I certainly have. There's, it is hard to count how many different viewpoints, many of which are valid. You, can, you kind of have some freedom um, in a passage like this concerning what you want to emphasize, and you could preach this 20, 25 different times and come up with a variety of things. I'm not going to preach this text 25 times. I'm going to preach it once, and I trust that the Lord will uh, speak to us through His Word. Uh, so if you're not there yet, uh, yes, Daniel chapter 1. Verses 8 through 21, please follow along as I read. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be observed in your presence and let the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept, them, kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talk, talked with them and out of them all, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So that is quite, quite a chunky text. And I, I hope that given our limited time today, we can still get through it all. And if not, then we will uh, trust in God's provision and just continue where we leave off. Um, but I, think, I do think it's best to take this passage as a whole. Um, 
And just kind of getting into it with some introductory material, I believe that in this text we have at least a couple points of view. I think we have a view from above, and I think we, you know, if you want to call it a vertical view, and then we have what we could call a more horizontal view. And I think from more of a horizontal view, one of the primary lessons that is drawn from this, and there's a multitude of preachers who have, who have, uh, taught this text from this viewpoint is simply the, is simply Daniel's resolve, right? Daniel's, Daniel's resolve, the fact that he literally, uh, purposed in his heart, opening verse, purposed in his heart or made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he, that is the king, drank. And so we can learn a lot about resolve, not a humanistic resolve, not a you know, not a conjured resolve, as it were, if we want to draw from this text. This is not a magical or conjured resolve. It is a resolve that is ultimately given by God. This is not a kind of holy resolve that a man can, can produce on his own. This is the resolve of a regenerate heart. This is the resolve of a man who has been made new by the Spirit of God and who sees things the way that God sees them. And so we want to recognize that, that this is, it may seem, it may seem passe, oh, we've heard this before, but we can't underestimate its importance. That resolve within the believer, whether it's Daniel or today's Christian, resolve remains a very important and vital uh, character quality of any man or woman or even child who claims Christ and wants to stand without compromise in a wicked and unbelieving generation. And of course, depending on the culture in which you live, your resolve may have to show forth a little brighter. You may, it may take a lot of discipline. It may take a lot of tears. You may have to go through a lot of temptation depending on where you are located uh, at any given point in time or at any given uh, culture. Sometimes you're going to have to really show forth resolve and tenacity. Maybe some days you don't. all depends on where you are at any given time. It all depends on what those temptations are. But the fact is, is that every Christian will have to show forth resolve. A resolve that is basically trust in the provision and grace of God made manifest, in which their integrity, which their very claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ is upheld by not compromising that integrity. And so there are several things I would, I would like us to see. Oh, really quick before that, this, we have the heavenly point of view, right? Don't want to forget that. There's the horizontal view and then there's the vertical point of view. And I think sometimes this might be lost in the text, but this sort of helps us grasp the overall, um, theme of what is occurring in Daniel. Remember, we see God as the ultimate subversive agent. Last, uh, last Lord's Day sermon, we titled this sermon, God in Exile. And, you know, if we're not careful, if we don't read, if we don't read the text, I think through, through, through the eyes of God Himself and consider what He considers about what's going on here, we may be tempted to think that God is somehow out of place. When we think of someone being in exile, we think of them being in a place where their power and where their influence and their ability to move about is somehow limited. But we don't want to say this about God. He's not in any way limited in His power based on region or culture at any time in history. It is all His. And so God is showing that even though He may be a God in exile, as it were, with Jerusalem under siege, and now He is with His people in Babylon, He has home court advantage wherever He goes. And that He would show Himself worthy of being exalted and worthy of worship even in the higher echelons of government, though he is in a foreign land. 
And so what God is effectively doing here is he is building his house. That's the vertical point of view. God is continuing to make manifest the glory of his kingdom, ultimately revealing the work of the Messiah, right? And not only in Daniel chapter 9 with the, where the Messiah, the prince, accomplishes his work, but also in Daniel chapter 7 where he receives the vision of the Son of Man, and that is the glorified Christ. So there's a lot happening here. So we see God's plan effectively to take this stump that is Israel. Israel, remember, is going to be cut down. The invasion of Jerusalem in 586 BC has not yet occurred, but it is going to happen. And so from a human point of view, maybe from a horizontal point of view, it may seem that all hope is lost. But with a divine point of view, he is paring it down. He is cutting down the house of Israel and Judah so that from that stump can spring forth a branch, a branch of righteousness. And anyone who places faith in that branch of righteousness will also be reckoned as righteous. So what I'm trying to get us to focus and recognize here is that God is ultimately doing a new work. Even though his people are in exile, even though the odds may seem stacked against them, God is doing a new work and he is continuing to build, to build his house with these four young men, these four youths who are called to serve in a sense, um, almost as priests in the household of Nebuchadnezzar. And priestly language is even used, if you recall last week's message. In verse 4, the narrative describes youths in whom there was no defect who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And so even that is, though that is the case, though these youths are in exile and seem to be at the whim and mercy of a pagan king, God will use Daniel and his friends as instruments in claiming Nebuchadnezzar's household, right? God can go anywhere and say, this is mine, and no one can do anything about it. You know, when he claimed you as his own, you couldn't do anything about it, nor can anyone else, no earthly power, nor heavenly power nor emissary of hell can unclaim what God has claimed. And so God will claim this as part of his own kingdom. And I believe this narrative in 7 through 21, 8 through 21, will clearly put that on display. We'll see this demarcation that has emerged already in this book. You know, we talked a little bit about cutting, right? Divisions, demarcations that are made, and we see uh, various divisions going on, and we see that Israel is already a cut nation, right? It's been removed from its land. You have Judah and Benjamin as the southern kingdom, right? That kingdom division. The last remaining tribes known collectively as Judah. And then Nebuchadnezzar cuts from them exiles and brings them back to Babylon. And then he cuts from them the best and brightest from that group to serve in his court. And then we see God doing more cutting, right? Nebuchadnezzar's been doing some of the cutting, but now God is going to do some cutting of his own. So we see that God is not limited in any way. God can intervene according to his own sovereign goodness. And so he cuts for himself Daniel and, three, and his three friends, known as Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. But this helps us, this vertical view, and God building something new in a pagan nation. It helps us keep from thinking that God isn't where he belongs. Right? That's what we think of in exile. I'm not home. I don't belong here. Get me out of this place. God faces no such challenge. Because wherever he is, it's his own. So when we're tempted to think that God isn't where he belongs, we remember that where he is belongs to him. 
That's a huge principle, maybe one of the greatest presiding truths in the study of Daniel, is that God is always exactly where He intends to be. And we will see Him in His own way flip Babylon upside down, even drawing the king, a pagan king, to Himself. So those are the, those are the two views I want to remind you of. The vertical view and then, of course, the horizontal view. And so as we come into the text this morning, we have, of course, a little bit of a play on words. You know, you never want to explain puns or jokes or whatnot because then it just becomes lame. But here we go. A hill to diet on, right? And of course, we see that this text deals with a challenge, and an initial challenge that Daniel and his three, his three compadres face. In a very real way, their lives are threatened because they are refusing an order from the king. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a hothead. He, of all, the, of all the, the, the kings that are mentioned in the book of Daniel, he, he holds the most unilateral power of all these Gentile kings. And as we see, Nebuchadnezzar is, is quite the hothead. He has an attitude problem and he needs an attitude adjustment. We will see in a chapter ahead, chapter 3, where, well, chapter 2, the, uh, the, the conjurers and magicians and wise men and sorcerers are unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is and therefore unable to interpret it. And he gets very angry at them and threatens to kill them. You know? And then in chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow to the idol that he has made, this great golden statue that he has made, it even says his face is contorted. Like, what are we, 10? You know, he has a problem. He, he wants people to do what he says, and so he gets very angry, and his countenance shows it. And then, of course, he throws the three into the fiery furnace, and his anger is reflected in the fact that he heats it seven times hotter than it's normally heated, thus killing his guards. So, I really want us to understand the challenge that Daniel and his friends are facing by defying the king. And so, looking at this hill to diet on, because we really understand that, Dan, that Daniel's life and the life of the, uh, the commander is, is very possible under threat. Daniel could lose his life over this. But we understand also that Daniel is a faithful man. He is a man who trusts God, and he is willing to put his own life on the line. And it's interesting that he seems to be willing to put others' lives on the line too. That's how much he trusts trusts in his God. Most of us, on our best day, our most faithful day, you know, where where, where our trust is like level 99, we're not not, uh, struggling with faith. Most of us will not put another person's life on the line. But that is how Daniel's, how great his resolve is. And... I don't think this text follows as it regards to, as it pertains to resolve, a definitive concrete pattern, but I do want to say a few things at the outlook um, regarding a true godly resolve that I believe are woven throughout this passage. Certain things that uh, godly resolution does or shows or produces. So here's a few of them, and there's probably more of it you could find, but I think these ones are key. Um, and the first one is that true resolve is concerned with God's holiness. I think that's the first thing we see. True resolve is concerned with God's holiness. Secondly, I believe that true resolve is anchored in God's power. When someone is really resolved concerning the things of God, they, that resolve 
relies on God's power. It's never separated from it. Resolve is not produced by human wisdom or strength. It is ultimately anchored in God's power. So therefore, it, it, is, it is not a resolve without reason. If we understand that God's presence and therefore His power is with us, upholding us, we understand that our resolve is not a fool's resolve. It is a godless resolve regardless of what anyone else may say about it. I'll also say that true resolve is preserved by God's grace. Right? You think about Daniel's situation. It says that it says twice at least that God, look at verse 17, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. That is from God, right? We see Nebuchadnezzar doing things, giving things, moving things, cutting things, appointing things. But then we see God, right? God in action. Well, he has something to give too. He has something to reveal. He has something to display. While Nebuchadnezzar is busy displaying his own glory, God, rightly so, is concerned with putting his glory on display. And of course, humbling Nebuchadnezzar. Another place we see this is that in verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. So God is giving, right? He, God knows beforehand the situation that Daniel and his friends are going to find themselves in, and God has no trouble coming to their aid and graciously giving them everything that they need to do. And so God gives in this case. So the resolve, any resolve we have is anchored in God's power. And it is preserved by God's grace and it's concerned with God's holiness. And here's another one I think we don't want to miss. Is that true resolve will bear fruit. Right? If the Spirit is at work, if the Spirit Himself gives us a godly resolution, that there will be some kind of fruit. Now, not all that fruit will be manifest in the exact same way. We have to understand that... the the outcome that we see in the life of Daniel will not, it's not a vanilla outcome. It's not always going to be the same. We have to recognize that right away because sometimes, even though the Lord is always with his people, sometimes he will give us the resolve, even leading to death, to be able to stand in the face of, of profound ungodliness, even if our lives are threatened, and sometimes it may be God's will that we suffer death for the sake of his name. So that just to clarify that the outcome will not always be the same, but what is the common denominator is that God gives grace to His people. God is with His people. God's power is present in His people. Think about the, the, the Reformers when, when William Tyndale, the person primarily responsible for giving us the Bible in English, that's why he was killed. For trying to produce an English Bible, imagine that. What we... What we hold in our hands today, in a sense, was produced in fire, right? In the fire of persecution, literally. And so, you know, we have to understand that even in a case like that, it doesn't mean that William Tyndale was somehow unvindicated. I think the very fact that we have an English Bible demonstrates that God vindicated him. God honored his sacrifice. God's power was not, did not depart from him when he was strangled and then, then burnt, nor has God departed from anyone who has stood steadfast in the midst of persecution and, and threat to life and limb for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So we want to understand that just because the outcome is not identical throughout the ages does not mean that these things are somehow compromised or absent. God always remains good. He always remains faithful. And even if our faithfulness to Him means facing death in persecution, God remains holy, God remains powerful, God remains gracious, and God remains the one who gives fruit, a fruit that will inevitably endure. I mean, it's tempting to stop right there today, but let's try to get into the text some. So go ahead and draw your attention to, to verse 8. Verse 8. So, of course, the context is this. Daniel and his friends are serving in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, and we see in verse 5 that the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now keep in mind, the idea here, the intent of the king is to thoroughly make these Israelite nobles, these young men in whom there is no blemish or spot, into Babylonians, Chaldeans, into thorough pagans to be used at the pleasure of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this food, this drink is a sign, and then we see Daniel's resolve. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So that's Daniel's first response. Notice the integrity of this man. He already made up his mind. And of course, this would be a difficult challenge. We have to recognize that. This is... This is the life that Daniel and his friends are kind of used to. There's, there, will be, there would be a familiarity about this. Remember that they are nobles. These four men were the nobility of Israel. And they are probably used to going to lavish feasts, eating fine food and wine. And yet they forsook the privileges that were attached to their former life in Israel and instead cast themselves at the mercy, provision, and grace of God. So, what we know from the outset is that to partake in the king's choice food and wine which he drank was to in some way defile themselves. And so Daniel is at the center of this. So this is, no sooner is he in Babylon than, than he is challenged. And not just his personal integrity, mind you, his very identity, right? We're, we're seeing a clash of identities. Remember, they are Daniel. They are Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. We went over the meaning of those names. Names pointed to a desired character. right? And they include, they all include the name of God. They all allude to the covenant God of Israel. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does, of course, is he assigns names. And Nebuchadnezzar is doing a lot of assigning. He calls Daniel Belteshazzar. Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. So he basically changes their names from the God of Israel to put on display his, his idols, his, the pagan idols of Babylon. And so we have to understand that clash. And so in this very early situation of exile, the question comes, is Daniel going to come out of this situation as Daniel, or is he going to come out of this situation as Belteshazzar? Daniel of Israel, Daniel the true Israelite who, 
who loves Yahweh and serves him and no other God. Right? This, is, this goes back to the first commandment. Or is he going to be Belteshazzar? Servant of the idols of Babylon. Ultimate servant of King Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's at stake here. If you want to talk about the vertical view again. What, what is the outcome going to be? And we would certainly hope that they will come through this, Daniel and his friends, with their integrity intact, with their very identity intact. Yes, I am Daniel. Yes, I am Hananiah. Yes, I am Mishael. Yes, I am Azariah. And I serve the true and living God of Israel. The only God, as Daniel alludes to in here, the house of the God. The only God. Though a pagan king may claim another. And we already see that, right? Nebuchadnezzar is claiming these men as his own. And so, we have to wonder, what do we make of God's claim on these men? I think there's some great application there. What do we make of God's claim on us? God has claimed us. If we are indeed His people, God has made a claim on us. And so, how will our lives, how will the way we conduct ourselves in a pagan culture reflect God's calling of each of us? Are we going to make our calling and election sure as Peter encourages us in the light of persecution? Or is it going to be suspect because it's much easier to compromise? It's much easier just to, to buckle and fold and play the part, not to make too much noise, right? Not to, not to offend people, not to make the king mad. Or are we ultimately going to see God as king, to see him as Lord, to see him as the one who is in charge? That his claim on us is a claim indeed. And that is the challenge. So what's going on here? Why, why, why is the uh, question of defilement? There, there are, this, this is a notoriously difficult text and it's kind of hard to land our plane. And I think, I think the various uh, interpretations that have been put forth, um, ha- all of them have some legitimacy to them. Right? But let's, let's put some of these together. So, first and foremost, the majority of, uh, of people who have preached this and majority of commentators believe that Daniel is simply eating, the challenge is Daniel eating meat sacrificed to idols and, of course, throw wine into that. That that's the obvious answer here. Daniel is faced with eating meat sacrificed to idols and, of course, if he does that, that would, not, that would defile him. It would, it would produce a stain. It would make him unclean. It would make him party to idolatrous worship, and so he resolves that he is not going to do that. And so the, the difficulty with that, you know, let's be clear here, the difficulty with that is that that is actually not in the text. We want to be careful what we assume. And, and of course, that could be the case. But we also understand from Paul that an idol is nothing. That it's not necessarily wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The main concern was actually being a part of that idolatrous worship. But Paul understands that there is only one God and an idol is nothing. An idol has always been nothing. And of course, there are some concerns drawn from the Old Testament. God does warn His people in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. He says, But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. So again, I think the context is that this is actual participation in a sacrificial rite, a pagan sacrificial rite. And he says, don't do that. And then he says, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So yes, there is a challenge that this could lead to idolatry, but eating meat sacrificed to idols is not by default idolatry in and of itself. And even Paul is willing to split some theological hairs there. But the text does not say any such thing. What we are told from the outset is that the, Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the king's choice food precisely because the, the food comes from the king. And he mentions that twice. That's why. It's from the king. And so I think it's important that we, we do some investigating to see why Daniel mentions that specifically rather than putting his emphasis on meat or food and wine sacrificed or devoted to idols. Don't want to assume here. Even though, of course, this defilement could lead to compromise, which would lead to idolatry. And so here we go. He makes up his mind. He resolves, right? Literally, he places, he makes, or puts. So his mind is already made up. Okay, that's the first thing. And that's what we understand as the kind of resolve that is concerned with God's holiness. That is Daniel, even as a young man. He is concerned with the, the very character of God. He doesn't want to defile himself. Some actually say that defilement is linked more closely to the word estranged, to be parted from, to be cut off from something. And we see that even happen um, in the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, that there are priests who are unfit for duty, and so they are actually estranged. They are cut off from their priestly duties. And so if we understand it that way, we can get a clearer picture of what is happening here? And I think in, in interpreting it in this light is that Daniel not only doesn't want to be defiled or stained or compromised, but he does not want to be, while he serves in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, estranged from being able to serve his God faithfully. So I think there is merit behind that point of view. And that's, and, that, and that's the same for us. None of us want to conduct ourselves in such a manner where we compromise our ability and lose opportunities to serve the living God. We don't want to be estranged from those opportunities. We want, the, we want our service to the Lord to be consistent, to be faithful, and to keep the holy character of God in mind. His holy, untarnished character so that our character will also be above reproach and untarnished. And this is a lot to ask for a young man. Remember, Daniel's probably in his very early 20s. Some have even suggested he was only a teenager at this time. That's the time, right? You're young. You want to live it up. You're, I'm, not in, I'm not in Judah anymore. I'm in pagan Babylon. What's the trouble with a little bit of compromise? What's the trouble with a little bit of temple prostitution or idolatry? Letting it all hang out. Having a little fun. Right? I'll follow God later. I know Yahweh will forgive me. It's no big deal. And such is our attitude towards sin these days. Where it's almost like we put the holiness, the very character and calling of God to the side so we can have a little bit of fun. We presume on God's grace. Little do we know that, the, how, that those compromises can lead to full-blown idolatry and apostasy. We underestimate 
the effect that sin can have and that sin that sin in our lives can reveal the true condition of our heart and far be it from a man to claim Christ and say, well, He's there when I need Him. That's, that, that, is an, that is an idolatrous view of the true God. A man of God like Daniel who sets this example is a man who resolves, who has already made up his mind. We call that person a stubborn person. We, we've known that person, right? Well, you've already made up your mind. What's the use in talking to you? I'm not going to go and try to change it. You've thought it through clearly and you have no interest in changing your mind. And much of the time, that is a good thing. There are certain things pertaining to the character of God where we must have our minds made up. We must be resolved as faithful image bearers to not bring reproach to God's character. And I think that is what is in view here. That characterizes Daniel's resolve. And it is not to defile or estrange himself. And this is the pattern of the godly. This is the very pattern of the godly. There are resolutions. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, the great, the great Puritan, you know, pretty much seen as the, 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 the main preacher of the Great Awakening along with George Whitfield, he had, res, he had res, resolutions that he put in place to hold himself accountable to walk with the Lord. But this has always been a pattern of the godly. Think about Hebrews 11.24-26. It says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Consider that Moses' upbringing was one of great privilege. And there were certain things he could take advantage of. But those things, those pleasures of sin, as the writer to the Hebrews calls it, would, would bring, would tarnish his character, would call into question his true loyalties. And it says Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses reckoned himself not as an Egyptian, but as a true Hebrew. And he said, and it even says this of him, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for which he was looking to the reward. We could say the same thing of Daniel, even though it's Old Testament. We could look at Daniel's actions here and say that he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Babylon. Even though he was assigned to a very privileged position being trained to that very end to serve Nebuchadnezzar. But he was also looking to the reward. He trusted in the promises of God. I think that's another thing we could add to this list, right? What, how is true resolve expressed? It is one that trusts in the promises of God. It takes God at His word. And I think that is such a challenge for today's church. We have simply stopped believing God. We don't trust in His word as we are called to do. And I think the, this resolve is well described by the psalmist. If you look at Psalm 119, verse 115, he says this, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of God. He realizes that certain proximity to the wicked may cause him to do wickedness. It may compromise his focus on the law of God so that he may keep that as a top priority and obey God. Now, this is in no way commanding us to have absolutely no proximity to evildoers. But there is a concern that we do not do the same things that they do. 
and so estrange ourselves from serving the true and living God. Right? I want us to get that. I think some, sometimes we fall into this, I think, a, its own form of legalism where we think that even talking to a sinner, right, talking to an unbeliever is somehow going to defile us. Right, We face that very challenge in a few days. Oh, if I go trick-or-treating, if I dress up in a costume, I am partaking in some pagan ceremony. And let me put your mind at ease, and I believe Jeremy agrees with this. We have our liberty in Christ for fun to go from door to door and get sweet candies. Except candy corn. Don't eat that. It's terrible. I mean, whatever happened to simply in, you know, having fun? Enjoying ourselves as a family. That yes, you by faith can instruct your kids to go door to door, be safe, and get candy and enjoy it and not have your conscience accuse you. It's not pagan. And I will say, if it's not done in faith, if it's not done knowing that God accepts you and makes you stand, yes, that's pagan. So if you can't do it in faith, then don't do it. But I think some of us are just, we're scared of our own shadow. And there's constant condemnation. There's constant fear of being defiled. That has no basis whatsoever. So I want us to have a balanced approach to this. And I ho- I'm hoping we can, obviously we're not going to get through this text today. Because there's a lot of verses and we're on verse 8 and 9. So, keep that in mind. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And we can resolve to live by faith in His provision knowing that His, His grace covers all. We don't have to be afraid constantly of falling under sin's condemnation. We can live in the light of grace. And I think we can also say that in this pattern, we look to Jesus ultimately, right? Hebrews 7.26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So ultimately, as Daniel does, we look to Christ. We can resolve not to defile ourselves because we serve, we appeal to a great high priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is Himself holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. So even though Jesus Himself was a friend of sinners, He Himself was not a sinner. He is the righteous one. He is the Holy One of God. And of course, He, as the living Word, faced threats of death from the religious intelligentsia, from the religious elite of his day. And yet he is the true example of what it means to be righteous and holy and good, and we lean on him alone for his imputed righteousness. That's what we were, we were able to reflect on on Reformation Sunday. And I think even in an, on a historical note, to return to our play on words of <laughs> a hill to diet on, if you're familiar with Martin Luther, he had to take a stand as well. Right? He had to choose to stand on the authority of Scripture alone. And that meant denying papal authority. It meant rebuffing it. He realized that he couldn't do both and stay undefiled. So the diet or diet here is a public assembly, not what you eat. But Martin Luther had this to say in 1521 said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for, do I, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. He's basically describing Daniel's mindset here. 
And then he concludes, I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Right? The, the, the great here I stand speech. And he, and he knew the cost. He knew the threats. He knew what it was to go against the Pope and the Emperor at that point. But I think we see that him following, we see Martin Luther following in some sense the example of Daniel, this resolve not to be defiled, not to be, not to be estranged from being able to serve God. And so we see what's emerging here in the life of Daniel and his friends. Right? Supposed, what would supposedly be setting them up for a very promising career. Very promising career. We're very career-oriented. right? We want opportunity. We want growth. We want a solid 401k or retirement plan. right? We want guarantees. And as long as Daniel was able and willing with his friends to simply toe the line and eat the king's delicacies, they had a promising career ahead of them in the court of the king. But that in and of itself would compromise their identity as men of Yahweh. I mean, how often do we enter a new service and have our hearts tested immediately. We may find, I, I guarantee we will find at some point, it's probably happened already to many of you, where God wastes no time in revealing who His man is, who His man or woman is in a new situation. And so these situations often involve opportunities. right? Great opportunities for wealth and expansion and growth. And a good name, a good reputation, authority, power. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, if you really want to test a man, don't give him, don't give him challenges, right? Give him authority, give him power. Kind of paraphrasing there. But I think that this is something that will really reveal the heart of a man. Is if you give him an opportunity for authority, it won't make the man, it'll simply reveal what was there all along. And simply by eating the king's choice food, the king's delicacies, would, would defile them, would estrange them. And so even though the result of caving to this may, may, may point to idolatry, I think it ultimately points to something greater. And uh, James Jordan who was helpful in explaining this. Listen to what he has to say. He says, Daniel and his friends were going to be educated into the company of the wise men of Babylon. They were willing to learn, but they did not want to be incorporated into pagan Babylon. Now keep in mind that word incorporated. Because that would estrange them from their calling as servants of the true God. Eating food is a sign of incorporation because we incorporate food into our flesh. More, eating the same food as other people and with them at the same meal means becoming one with them. So break on that. So what's in view here is fellowship. Fellowship with the Babylonian pagan way of life by eating Nebuchadnezzar's food. So listen to the parallel he draws. When Yahweh shares a meal with His people in the peace offering, He was uniting Himself with them. To eat the food offered by God is to unite with Him, while to eat the food offered by the serpent is to unite with Him. So in this case, Nebuchadnezzar represents the serpent, right? There would be patterns throughout Scripture developing where, where God crushes the head of the serpent. I believe this is, this is repeated many times throughout Scripture until the head of Satan is ultimately crushed in Christ's death and resurrection. So move, going on in this quote by Jordan, 
If I can, if I can find it. Oh, yes. So, explaining that, in light of everything, the meal was strongly connected not only to the Chaldean or Babylonian way of life, but that way of life under Nebuchadnezzar as Lord. And so to eat the king's delicacy was to certify. It was sort of like a certificate of authenticity. This sealed the deal in, 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 in basically transforming oneself to the Babylonian pagan way of life. In other words, eating the king's delicacy signified ultimate surrender. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar as the ultimate. A surrender of their former way of life as faithful Israelites. And so to keep from doing this, they rejected his food. So the, the, the interpretation put forward here is more beyond idolatry. Right? It's to align themselves with Nebuchadnezzar as ultimate and to align themselves with the Babylonian way of life, hence forsaking their true Jewish heritage and becoming a thorough pagan. There you have it. So you can search that out uh, deeper yourselves. So again, to avoid this, they rejected his food. They rejected his delicacies. So even if eating, even if the meat was not sacrificed to idols, eating and drinking of the king's provision would be seen as sanctioning and legitimizing his ultimacy, his primacy. And affirming their fellowship with Babylon and affirming themselves as Babylonians. Hence, Nebuchadnezzar would be accurate in his renaming of them. We would see here Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Babylonians, not Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. So it's to bind themselves ultimately to the king and his ways and to, and to basically uh, verify allegiance and dependence on him. So the problem again is not so much that the food was sacrificed to idols, but as the text says, the problem was that it came from the king. And somehow it coming from the king and eating his delicacies was to, was to declare ultimate allegiance to him. Thus Jordan concludes, the opposition in Daniel 1 is not between clean food and unclean food or between idol sacrificed and unsacrificed food or even between pagan food and believer's food. Rather, it is between, listen to this, it is between old food and new food. So what have we said from the outset? That from the heavenly point of view, God is, ma- he is doing a new work. He is building his kingdom. And he's using, and he is using Daniel and his four friends. So you see the newness here, right? There's not only the, the cutting off, uh, you know, cutting down of the trunk, but you have young men, right? Young, fresh into ministry, fresh into serving God. And they're eating, as it says, vegetables. We'll get into that later. But they're eating vegetables. Vegetables, literally, seeds. They're not even eating mature vegetables. They're eating seed food. So this kind of points us back to the Garden of Eden where God gives Adam and Eve seed for food. So we can expand on this later, but I kind of just want to give you a a sneak peek into next week. So finishing finishing this statement by Jordan, he says... The old food is that of Adam. Adam grown old and corrupt and headed for judgment. The new food is manna for new Adams who are founding a new way of life in God's kingdom. And I believe that is what we have here precisely. God is calling out of a wicked, rebellious, and stiff-necked people, new Adams, who are men truly in their heart, blameless and upright, without blemish, who will not defile themselves, who will not compromise themselves for the sake of opportunity and public acceptance. 
And I believe that is the same challenge we have today. And I believe that is the same call that has remained unchanged toward any who would align themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is calling new Adams. New Adams in light of the accomplishments of the last Adam. That we would be new creations in Christ, ready, willing, and able, depending completely on His grace, to do this work building through the proclamation of the Gospel the new creation. Building the household of God. And God is still calling those new Adams to this very day. And I believe that's our challenge this morning. We want to bring some immediacy as we as we close our study. Are we going to answer that call humbly? Right? Coming to the Lord with nothing at all to offer, relying only on His grace, responding to the Gospel, saying that yes, because of the work of the last Adam, I want to be a new man. I want to be a new Adam and stand and confront a pagan culture who hates God and denies the Lordship of Christ and will not compromise himself no matter the temptation. Let's conclude with this quote by Matthew Poole. Daniel knew he should by this bait be taken with the hook which lay under it and insensibly be drawn from the true to a false religion. Far be it from us that that would happen to us. Just like the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, that it should kill us. And I know that sometimes we don't think of those compromises as threatening at all. We don't think that really anything that bad could happen. Or to say it's just one time. Or God will forgive me. And yet its result is often catastrophic. Let us, like Daniel, make up our mind to set, to establish, to purpose in our heart that even though it may look good, even though the opportunities may be grand, even though they may give us personal glory, even though we may think that they come from God Himself, don't be deceived. Resolve not to defile yourself with, and who cares where this choice food or wine comes from in whatever form, whether it be from the king, whether it be from your peers, whether it be from the Republican politician you just voted in who came into office with all these wild promises. Regardless of where it comes from, resolve in your own mind that you will not be estranged from God. That it would be far better to be estranged from society, from opportunities, even even to be estranged from this earthly vessel. It would be better to be estranged from that than be estranged from God and defile oneself. So let us resolve as Daniel did, and we'll finish this text um, next Lord's Day or whenever I have opportunity. Um, but that pretty much serves as, as an introduction. But now we know the heart of Daniel, and I do pray that that would be our heart and mind as well. So let us pray. Father, we thank You again for Your love and Your faithfulness to us. We, we thank You that we can at least um, explore in part uh, this text and to see at least the beginning of Your grace being made manifest, Your provision for Your people, that even though they are in a potentially life-threatening situation, You are with them and You are doing something new. You are choosing men in exile to build Your kingdom. You've equipped them with Your truth and grace and everything necessary that doesn't come from themselves, from their own strength and wisdom, but it comes from You. 
that You granted them every grace to stand strong and without compromise, that, that Daniel and his friends would not see themselves estranged from serving You, but rather they would walk uprightly and in, in, in integrity to not fellowship with unbelief, but rather to rely on Your grace and power to get them through that time of testing. And so, Lord, we would ask the same thing for ourselves. We know that to one degree or another, we endure times of testing. And sometimes the affliction that accompanies it will be light. Sometimes it will be great. And sometimes somewhere in between. But Lord, You do test us. You test the heart of every man. And we know that You also test the heart of Your elect, of Your very people who have been called out of darkness into Your marvelous light. Lord, that You can, you can vindicate Your own work. That when You test those who are Yours, that as Job said, when we are tested, we would come forth as gold. That there would be no hint of compromise or at least very little of it, and that would be rooted out by the continual work of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, that is our hope. We do face trial. We do face the testing of our faith. We do face rejection from those who hate You. But we can cling, Father, to You, a God who loves us, who sent His own Son to die in our place so that through trusting in Him we could be reckoned righteous and reckoned righteous forever. Not, not clinging to a righteousness of our own. And I pray, Lord, that we have resolved already to discard that righteousness, the righteousness that is of filthy rags and have put on the garments of salvation by faith, a righteousness, an alien righteousness imputed from Christ our Savior and our Lord because You have crushed pride. You have humbled us so that we may fall on You and by faith receive that righteousness, Lord. Help us to walk in it and help us to walk by it that Your name would be exalted. And that even though the pagan may not initially understand, he would in due time behold our good works and then glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.